You're listening to Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Ed Sheeran is scheduled to go to trial next month to face a $100 million lawsuit accusing him of ripping off Marvin Gaye's soul classic, Let's Get It On, in his hit song, Thinking Out Loud. Baby, my heart could still fall us hard at 23. And I'm thinking about Led Zeppelin's copyright win in the long-running battle over its classic song, Stairway to Heaven, will let Sheeran keep the jury from hearing his hit song, Side by Side, with Marvin Gaye's classic. Terry, let's start with the Stairway to Heaven case, because the judge in the Sheeran trial is relying on that case, which the Supreme Court recently refused to take an appeal from. Why did the jury not hear the recordings of Stairway to Heaven and Taurus, which Led Zeppelin was accused of copying? So in the Led Zeppelin case, the actual song that was copyrighted by the band Taurus was never deposited in their the copyright office. What the band copyrighted was the sheet music, and they deposited with the copyright office in Washington, D.C., a copy of the sheet music as it was required. Whatever you're getting copyright on, you have to give a copy of that to the Library of Congress. The original idea by Thomas Jefferson was this was a way of building out the Library of Congress's collection, but it's still required to this day. And so that's why in Led Zeppelin, the recording, the album could not be played because that was not what was copyrighted. What was copyrighted was the sheet music. And it took the Ninth Circuit a while to get to that decision. And this court in Ed Sheeran's case deliberately waited to see what the outcome on that issue would be out of the Ninth Circuit because the exact same issue had been raised by Ed Sheeran as part of his defense to the copyright lawsuit that the Townsend family had brought against his song, Thinking Out Loud. And so once the Led Zeppelin decision was made, the judge in Ed Sheeran's case decided to go with that precedent and prohibited the actual Marvin Gaye recording let's get it on, from being played in courtroom to the jurors. Are artists now filing sound recordings with the Copyright Office as well? Yes. So some basic copyright law background. You do not have to register a work to be entitled to a copyright on it. There are a lot of advantages to registering a work when it comes to a lawsuit. It gets you into federal court. It gets you statutory damages. It potentially could get you attorney's fees. There's uh, some proof benefit. There's a presumption that you have a copyright. But that said, you do not actually have to go and register a copyright. And for reasons that I can't explain because I was a young child and not practicing <laughs> lawyer at the time, there was a time in recent U.S. history where bands would only register the sheet music and not the actual recording. And that was commonplace. Subsequent to that time, the thinking with respect to copyright registrations has changed. And for the most part, not universally, but for the most part now, the advice being given by copyright attorneys to recording artists is you should register at the copyright office, both the sheet music and the sound recording, 
which of course requires you to give the copyright office a copy of the sheet music and a copy of the of the recording. Not exactly an onerous burden. Yes, there is a minor fee involved, but even that's not particularly onerous. That's the new thinking with respect to how to go about registering copyright in music. It is not a change that was made at the copyright office. It's just a change in practice being recommended by copyright attorneys. So in future cases, jurors will be able to hear the sound recordings of these songs at copyright infringement trials. Absolutely. Keep in mind that the songs that we mostly see being put forward as having been infringed in recent times, such as Marvin Gaye's Let's Get It On, are much older songs. I think Let's Get It On was from 73 or so. In the Blurred Lines case, remember the song there by Marvin Gaye was also from the 70s. Songs that are being written and recorded now typically are being registered in both the sheet music form and the recording form. And so we eventually will see lawsuits in which the jury gets to actually listen to the music that was recorded sound that was registered with the copyright office. Why does it seem that defendants don't want the jury to hear the actual sound recording, whereas plaintiffs do? In other words, in in this case, Sheeran's counsel doesn't want the music to be played. Well, I think Ed Sheeran's lawyers would probably say that it might contaminate the jury's deliberation. What is actually copyrighted is not that recorded sound. That's not what's at issue. What's at issue is on the page of the sheet music. And to the extent that you have allegations, as you do in the Sheeran case, to the effect that the rhythm, the harmonies, the bass line, the backup course, the tempo, the syncopation, the looping, were all infringed. A jury's more likely to find infringement listening to the sound recording because many of those elements are simply not present in the sheet music. And I have seen actual copies of sheet music deposits of various famous songs over the years at the copyright registrar's office, and you would be shocked at how bare bones they are. It can often be nothing more than the tune, the overarching theme, telling you what time it's played in. You know, it's 4-4 time. And that's always shocked me. But so much of the work that is done in sound recordings over the years happens in a studio and not on paper. And that's why best practice probably is now to make sure that you're registering the sound recording as well as the sheet music. Unless jurors can read music, I don't see how they can compare all those elements that you talked about. Do they take their opinions then from the experts? That's exactly how it's done. About. Do they take their opinions then from the experts? That's exactly how it's done. Experts now play an outsized role in copyright infringement cases in the music area. Both sides will have an expert. The experts will come in and explain what the sheet music means and what the notations mean. And they will, in limited circumstances, be able to sit there at a keyboard in the courtroom and pound out the notes. That is not the same as playing the sound recording, and it's not always allowed by a judge, but it is a frequent compromise that courts make so that the jurors who you are correct often will not have the ability to read sheet music. That will give them some understanding of what's going on, but it's usually tightly controlled as to what can be played by the expert, even in those circumstances where it's allowed. Ed Sheeran has been sued before. 
for copyright infringement. Will that come up at this trial? You know, defendants and Sharon's counsel were very concerned about that because you're correct, June. He's been a defendant in multiple lawsuits, which should have no bearing on the current lawsuit because uh, the facts are different from case to case. And, and so the D- defense counsel made a motion, what is referred to as an eliminate motion in advance of trial, asking that the judge enter an order barring all references to those other copyright infringement lawsuits against Mr. Sharon. And the court just recently granted that request. So the court has entered an order saying that plaintiff may not at any time bring up or make reference to other cases in which Ed Sheeran was involved with respect to copyright. Now, the Sheeran trial is scheduled to start next month. Is it likely to go off as scheduled? So at the time that uh, Judge Stanton set the November 10th uh, trial date, the um, federal court in New York City, which is called the United States District Court for the Southern District of New York, had reopened um, the courthouse for business. And individual judges were making their own decisions as to whether or not to go forward with jury trials. And the Sheeran case is going to be a jury trial. Judge Stanton felt comfortable conducting a jury trial live in person in his courtroom. And so he set November 10th as a date. And keep in mind, this case was first filed in 2016. So it's been four years. At some point, justice delayed is justice denied. And so I understand the judge's thinking in that regard. And at the time he said it, New York seemed to have moved past the worst parts of the COVID-19 pandemic and, and was doing relatively well. What the judge did not take into account is New York State's quarantine travel restrictions. And so just a couple weeks ago, the defendants filed a motion with Judge Stanton pointing out to him that even though he had told them he was not going to delay the trial past November 10th, that Ed Sheeran is a UK resident. He's in the UK. Some of his lawyers and some of his witnesses are UK residents, and that they are prohibited as a matter of law from flying from the UK to New York. They also pointed out that the plaintiff is a California resident, and the lawyer for plaintiffs is a California resident, and California is on New York State's quarantine list because of the high instance continuing of COVID-19 infections in California. And therefore, those lawyers and the plaintiff would have to come to New York and quarantine for 14 days ahead of the trial. And defendants pointed out all these facts to the court and said, in light of all this, we should probably continue the trial because there's no way at least the UK residents can get there. Seems like a good argument. We'll keep track of what happens there. Thanks, Terry. That's Terrence Ross of Catton Rosenman. This week, the Supreme Court added a few cases to its docket, one involving law enforcement chasing after someone and going into their home in what's called hot pursuit without a warrant. Joining me is Jordan Rubin, Bloomberg Law Editor. So, Jordan, tell us about this case of hot pursuit the court is going to consider. So, in this case, a man named Arthur Lang was driving in Sonoma, California, and an officer followed him home into his driveway and eventually into his garage. After that, Lang was convicted of DUI. Lang's argument is that the officer wasn't allowed to pursue him into his home without a warrant because Lang was only suspected of having committed a misdemeanor. And so that raises the issue whether law enforcement can enter a home without a warrant in hot pursuit of someone suspected of committing 
a misdemeanor. The court has said that officers can do so when investigating felonies, but not minor traffic violations. And so this case presents something in the middle, misdemeanor pursuit. Is hot pursuit the same as exigent circumstances? Explain those two concepts. So, of course, the Fourth Amendment can protect people in their homes from law enforcement coming in without a warrant, but there are exceptions to the warrant requirement. One of them is exigent circumstances, and that arises when, say, for example, there's a suspect who's running away and they're running into a home. Now, that's when someone is committing a felony and law enforcement is allowed to pursue them under what's called the hot pursuit doctrine into the home. And so the Supreme Court has upheld that exigent circumstances exception to the Fourth Amendment where officers can then pursue people into a home when they're suspected of committing a felony and officers can do that even without a warrant. So the question here is whether they can do that with a misdemeanor. Exactly. Is there a generally accepted rule across the country about this? So there's not, and that's what prompted the Supreme Court to take the case. That's usually why the Supreme Court will take up a case as a general rule when different courts around the country have reached different conclusions. And so courts across the country have interpreted that differently. Some apply a categorical rule saying that law enforcement is allowed to conduct these hot pursuits in misdemeanor cases, just like they are in felonies. And some other courts around the country hold differently. And so the question in front of the court now is whether this categorical rule allowing these hot pursuits in misdemeanor cases is okay in the same way that the court has said it's okay for felonies. And are misdemeanors more common than felonies? Much, much, much more common. And so that's why this is an important case for the justices to take up. Sometimes felony, more serious cases get more attention and for good reason sometimes. But the reality is that misdemeanors are by far the most common basis for arrest. And so even if the court's ruling here won't have the biggest impact, perhaps in terms of something like a murder case, in terms of the sheer volume of cases, the impact could be much broader than an average case. So now this involves privacy interests, as you mentioned. And in the past, the Supreme Court has been very protective of privacy interests in the home especially against intrusion by law enforcement. That's right. And so we'll see to what extent that's going to be true in this context, whether they're going to apply the rules they've upheld in the felony context to the misdemeanor context, or whether uh, people will essentially have more protections in their home when suspected of committing misdemeanors than they do of committing felonies, at least when it comes to this hot pursuit doctrine. So the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers filed an amicus brief here asking the court to take the case. Isn't there a fear that the court will say, yes, you you can engage in hot pursuit for a misdemeanor? There's certainly the possibility that the court could hold that, and that's what courts have held around the country. So in those jurisdictions, the court would only be affirming what's already the rule. But one thing that's important that the Supreme Court can do here is that it can announce a uniform rule to apply around the country so that there aren't different rules that apply to a person allegedly committing a misdemeanor in one state versus another. So regardless of how the court comes down, there could be some benefit to there being some uniformity around the country. 
Jordan, is there any distinction between the garage and the house? So it's an interesting question. It might depend on sort of a case-by-case basis in terms of whether the garage is detached from the house. But in a case where you're talking about the garage that's a part of the house, there wouldn't be a distinction where it becomes more interesting. And what brings up potentially different fact patterns is when you're talking about a detached garage and how far away that is from the house and different sorts of fact patterns can spin out that way. Jordan, in another case involving a home, the Supreme Court decided not to take a Fourth Amendment case that would have clarified the rules for law enforcement entering the area surrounding a home without a warrant. Tell us about that case. Right. So this case comes from Vermont and a defendant named Clyde Bovat. And he was convicted of something called deer jacking, which is basically an illegal hunting of deer. That's what they called it there in Vermont. And he had a garage that was detached from the home and that gave rise to one of these more interesting fact patterns. And his motion to suppress was denied and the Supreme Court wound up rejecting his case. Any idea why the court rejected this case but took the other case? Well, they present different discrete legal issues, and the court almost never explains itself when it's just denying a case. But one thing that was interesting in the Bovat case here is that in connection with the denial, there was a statement issued by Justice Gorsuch that was joined by Justice Sotomayor and Justice Kagan expressing some of their views about how they were concerned that Mr. Bovat's rights were violated in this case, even if they didn't necessarily disagree with whether the case should be taken up or not. It was a statement. It wasn't a it wasn't a dissent, but it was a statement respecting the denial. And they took the opportunity there to talk about what they saw as some constitutional issues with the Vermont state court ruling that ruled against Bovat. Yeah, we should note that it takes four Supreme Court justices to take a case, so they might have been one justice short there. So let's talk about the state court. The state court decision was based on the plain view doctrine. That's right. And so that's another Fourth Amendment doctrine that can wind up in some ways, some people might think, is contradicting what some of your otherwise Fourth Amendment rights might be. And what the Plainview Doctrine essentially says is that an, if, if an officer is in a place where they're legally allowed to be, then they're allowed to essentially go off of whatever information they see there. And to illustrate that by way of what happened in this case, when the game wardens in Vermont went to Mr. Bovat's house, when they went up to his detached garage, they looked through the window and they saw evidence on his truck that wound up tying him to these hunting violations. And in upholding the rejection of Bovat's motion to suppress the evidence there, what the Vermont State Court said is that because the officers were in a place where they were allowed to be when they were looking into the garage under the Plainview Doctrine, they were allowed to then get a warrant based on the information they saw when they were peering into the garage there. Is there any discussion or disagreement about whether officers are allowed to come onto your property? Well, that's what Justice Gorsuch was getting at in his separate statement. And he brought up a case from 2013 that the U.S. Supreme Court decided that involved drug-sniffing dogs that 
what the court did there was it essentially established more protections, not just within the home, but within the area immediately outside the home called the curtilage, which is also protected like the inside of the home is under the Fourth Amendment. And so what Justice Gorsuch was getting at in his statement was essentially that the Vermont State Court ignored this 2013 U.S. Supreme Court case in saying that the officers were okay based on the plain view doctrine. Justice Gorsuch was essentially saying that the Vermont court gave the U.S. Supreme Court ruling short shrift in ignoring this curtilage protection that the justices had upheld before. I remember the oral arguments in that case specifically because Justice Scalia asked a lot of questions about the curtilage and the drug-sniffing dogs being on the curtilage. And, you know, the curtilage, is it's part of the house. That's right. And so that's Justice Gorsuch's point. And so even though it wasn't a dissent, Justice Gorsuch's statement, again, joined by the two other justices, Kagan and Sotomayor, essentially served as a warning for state courts like Vermont and other courts that might rule similarly to give the curtilage more thought than the Vermont court did in this case. Jordan, let's talk now about your interviews with some of the advocates before the court. You talked to two of the lawyers who argued in the first argument session of the October term. So tell us about their experiences. How was it to argue over the phone? It was really interesting to hear from lawyers who participated in what was really a a rare event, not just being able to argue in front of the Supreme Court, but doing so during the pandemic when the justices are holding arguments remotely due to pandemic precautions. They're not holding arguments in the court. And so this raises a whole host of issues, some of them just technological issues that can raise a bunch of concerns for lawyers heading into an argument, like making sure you have the right phone line that you might not have ahead of the argument. Something as simple as that, that is yet another thing that a lawyer needs to prepare for in addition to the actually knowing the substance of a case, which might be the only thing that a lawyer is worried about in normal times heading into an argument. So that was one interesting thing and talking to them about and just having this added layer of this technological issue, which all of us around the country are dealing with in our own jobs. And we learned that it applies to these pandemic Supreme Court arguments, too. I like to know some of the details of this. So last term, when they started with these arguments, some of the lawyers got dressed up as if they were in court. Do most lawyers do that now, or are they casual, since no one can see them? Well, right. No one can see them, but what was interesting about this October argument session in particular was that the court artist, who's usually sketching the justices and the lawyers at the Supreme Court, Art Lean, did sketches of the people who were arguing at home this time as well. And so we got an inside look at people's home offices or from wherever they were arguing. We saw a lot of people were actually quite casual in how they presented their arguments in terms of how they were dressed. So different people's personalities came through that way in their arguments too. Not everyone was just wearing the usual suits. So that was an interesting feature of these pandemic arguments that you don't usually see in normal times. And also, one lawyer you spoke to said that with the way that they do it over the phone, Chief Justice Roberts goes in order of seniority to each of the justices. So you don't have a lot of the crosstalk or justices cutting into one another. So one of the lawyers you spoke to said you can't get a feel from the questions as to whether this is something that justices really care about or it's just their turn. 
That's right. So this seriatim or in order questioning that the justices are doing just in order to keep order during these telephone arguments where everyone can't see each other, there's really intense debate over whether that's a good thing or not. On the one hand, some people see it as a good thing because all of the justices get to ask their questions. The in-court argument sessions are really a chaotic free-for-all where you have Chief Justice Roberts playing traffic cop and making sure some people aren't interrupting others and people get to answer their question and the lawyers get to uh, complete their answers. And so a good thing, some people think anyway, is that the questions actually get to be asked and then fully answered, at least within the time period that they allow for answers. On the other hand, as you're alluding to, if justices just get to ask their questions in order, oftentimes they'll have these questions prepared in advance, it seems. And they're not really engaging in the normal back and forth, which is supposed to be the whole point of the oral argument and to flesh out concerns in real time. And some of that is happening during these arguments, but they're really more tanned in a sense. And so one wonders to some extent how useful they are in terms of justices really getting to dig deep into issues like they normally would in an in-person argument. And my favorite topic is always food. And I know that (laughs) some of the lawyers, they have a certain regimen in the morning, a routine they go through. Tell us about the breakfast that some of the uh, lawyers were telling you about. Right, again, so this is another thing that you wouldn't think that you'd be talking to Supreme Court lawyers about, but there's apparently a lot of discussion about this, too, what to eat on the morning of an argument. I learned in talking to one of the lawyers who argued that there's apparently a lot of literature about this that's out there. And so the it's it's well known, I think, to some who follow these arguments that lawyers will do moot courts and prepare the substance of the arguments that they're going to make in front of the justices. But what the lawyers we spoke to talked about mooting the food you're going to eat so you can simulate the day of the argument and know how you're going to feel then and mooting what you're going to wear, as we talked about before, so you know how you're going to feel in that sense as well. So really, it covers the gamut, all the different things that lawyers are thinking about these days, just like the rest of us, even though we're all remote. So is there a favorite breakfast choice? Well, oatmeal came up during the conversation that we had in terms of that just being something that's kind of bland and won't cause any issues during the argument, but it is a matter of taste, and everyone does seem to have their own way about handling that. Yeah, interesting. And finally, did anyone mention the absence of Justice Ginsburg? Oh, sure. Uh, An interesting thing about these cases that were argued this month in October is that they were supposed to be argued at the end of last term when Justice Ginsburg was still alive and on the court. And so, unfortunately for the lawyers, as they were telling it, they missed out on this chance to argue in front of Justice Ginsburg, even saying nothing of the relevance to how she might have ruled in their respective cases, just having missed out on arguing in front of that historic figure, even over the phone, is something that these lawyers miss. Thanks so much, Jordan. That's Bloomberg Law Editor Jordan Rubin. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Eastern, right here on Bloomberg Radio.